and Calvary family. This is a very exciting day in the life of our church because today is Pastor David Kanaversky's first official Sunday. Pastor David, if you would stand, I want to welcome you. Give him. I want to kind of walk you through a little bit of uh, some upcoming timeline in regard to Pastor David. During the month of December, Pastor David will be in Kalamazoo for a few days a week, and then uh, beginning in January, the Kanaversky family will be relocating to Kalamazoo and beginning their full-time ministry. And uh, during the months of December and January, uh, those two months will be focused on Pastor David working really closely with Pastor Jeff to get to know the church and to get acquainted with the senior associate role. And then in February, Pastor Jeff is going to be leaving for his long-awaited three-month sabbatical. He graciously gave up a sabbatical slot to one of the other associate pastors, and uh, so he is long overdue for a sabbatical. He'll be uh, departing in February for three months, and that's when Pastor David will officially take over the senior associate duties. But I also want to note that Pastor Jeff is not retiring. Uh, contrary to, you know, rumors that we, every time we announce this, uh, we, we keep coming back to it. He's not retiring. After his sabbatical, he is going to be serving in a part-time capacity as our pastor of global ministries. And Lord willing, he'll be in that role for many years to come. I think we agreed on 20, Jeff, is, is, if I remember correctly. <laughs> last thing I want to mention is that uh, we're going to be planning an installation service for Pastor David after his family gets settled in after the new year. So I'll be looking uh, for announcements to that to come in the, in the weeks to come. We're excited to have Pastor David join our team. Brother, welcome. We're so excited uh, to minister together with you. Well, I want to invite uh, the congregation to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. And Isaiah 44 is one of the hardest-hitting chapters in the Bible, particularly the section in which Isaiah confronts idolatry is one of the hardest-hitting chapters. And I'm going to be using more of a kind of textual, topical approach to this passage because I want to take what Isaiah says about some key errors and deceptions and apply them to the forms of those errors and deceptions which are common in our day. And our text is going to speak out really strongly against four deceptions, four doctrines of demons. And so I'm going to be doing the same. My job is to preach the Word of God faithfully, to pass on the content and the same tone as the text itself. And this is a hard-hitting passage. Now, we live in a day in which the world reacts very antagonistically to clear statements of truth, no matter how lovingly the truth is spoken. And within the church, many believers mistakenly think that we should avoid upsetting unbelievers at any cost. And so when preachers come to a chapter like Isaiah 44, we're coming kind of braced because we anticipate that we might be told by well-meaning members of the congregation to tone it down a little and not to talk so directly about those of various religions and cults of our day. The thinking is kind of goes as follows. How are we going to 
win people to Christ if the preacher preaches sermons which offend them. And I understand that perspective, but I think what that perspective fails to recognize is that unbelievers, as the scripture teaches, are being held captive by Satan to do his will. They are imprisoned beyond thick walls of lies and deceptions. The doctrines of demons are the prison walls behind which they are held captive. And so out of love and compassion for them, it is necessary to to take the bulldozer of truth to the walls of demonic lies. And it is after the walls of Satan's lies have been knocked down that then we can so gently and tenderly and lovingly take the captives by the hand and lead them to the loving embrace of Christ. This is what Paul was referring to when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. He says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You see, Satan has erected great and terrible walls of lies against the knowledge of God to prevent people from coming to know God. And so we must tear those walls down so that people can be reunited with their maker. You know, when, they, uh, when a terrorist group takes hostages and they're being held captive, sometimes a special forces team or a hostage rescue team will go in to try to save those hostages. And when they go in, it's usually a very traumatic experience for the hostages. Because the rescuers often have to kick down doors or blast their way through barricaded doors. They often have to throw disorienting disorienting flashbangs into the room. And then they have to engage the terrorists in combat before they can then gently lead the captives away to safety and freedom. It's a very traumatic experience when the barricaded door is blasted or kicked down and when the flashbangs are thrown in. Likewise, in the spiritual realm, to rescue people from cults, to rescue people from false religions, it often requires blasting through the barricaded doors of the dungeons which hold them, the doctrines of demons by which they are chained. That's what Isaiah is doing in chapter 44, and that's therefore what my message is intended to do. By the power of the Spirit, by inspiration of the Spirit, Isaiah is going to write powerful truths, and these truths are going to kick down the doors of the dungeon, as it were, to rescue those held captive by the lies of the enemy. So like the jarring sound of a door being kicked down, my message this morning is probably not going to be pleasant to hear for those who are trapped behind the dreadful walls of the doctrines of demons that we're going to be discussing. 
But I want to make sure that you know that I'm attacking the lies that hold people captive, not the captives themselves. To Satan's lies and to the false teachers who spread them, we won't hold back. But we do so in order to rescue those held captive by them. We're attacking the captors, not the captives, the terrorists, not the hostages, the prison, not the prisoners. We want to tear down the walls of lies. We're not here to tear down anyone. I want you to keep that in mind throughout the message. So I kind of want to ask you to brace yourselves because Isaiah 44 is going to kick down some doors. It's going to kick down the doors of four deadly deceptions in order to rescue those behind the walls. Isaiah 44 verse 2 is going to kick down the door of abortion. Isaiah 44 verse 8 is going to kick down the door of polytheism. Isaiah 44 verse 9 is going to kick down the door of idolatry. And Isaiah 44 verse 24 is going to kick down the door of evolution. So let's step up to that first dungeon door and learn what Isaiah 44 says about it. And this is the dungeon door of abortion. Now originally I had three dungeon doors but then late in my preparation I realized that Isaiah chapter 44 verses 1 through 5 has a really clear and powerful theme and that is the theme of the hope which comes through offspring and through descendants the messianic hope as Isaiah is talking to Israel is going to be revealed and realized through their descendants the generations to come (coughs) And in verse 2, there is a very powerful statement that certainly applies to the issue of abortion. In Isaiah 44, verse 2, it says, Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb who will help you. That phrase is repeated in verse 24, which says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. We want to breach the dungeon door of abortion in order to to rescue the parents and the babies of this dark deception. Isaiah 44, 1 through 5 says, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. And will name Israel's name with honor. This section continues the theme of divine comfort, which we studied last time in chapter 43. And it's talking about the Lord's promises to his people Israel. But notice the foundational reason the Lord gives for these comforting promises. He says in verse 2 that he made them and formed them from the womb and therefore he will help them. 
God is comforting Israel by promising to help them and to give them a bright future. And the reason he promises to do so is rooted, first of all, in his sovereign election of Israel, which is discussed in verse 1, and then secondly, in the fact that he formed them from the womb, as is mentioned in verse 2. And the promise he gives is to pour out his spirit on their offspring, on their descendants, on those who will spring up on their children's children's children. Notice the hope that is focused on their future descendants. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. Isaiah is telling the people of Israel that the messianic hope is centered in their descendants. It's through their descendants that Messiah will come. It's through their descendants that the good news of the gospel will go out through all of the world. So he's telling them, these are people who are about to face the Babylonian captivity. And he's reminding them to look far into the future at the hope which will come through their descendants, through their offspring. I think this has a very powerful application to the issue of abortion. Beloved, abortion is not just the murder of a little baby, and it is the murder of a little baby. But it is not just a murder of one child. It is the cutting off of an entire line of human descendants. It's a cutting off of all of the immense potential and all of the hope for humanity that could come from that line of offspring and from those descendants. You see, when you kill a baby, you not only end a human life, you also cut off the immense and immeasurable potential of all the generations to come. And so rightly, it has been, it has been said, people have wondered is the one who would have cured cancer were they murdered in the womb? Is the one who would have solved some world problem were they and their line cut off by abortion? Will some key person that could have intervened to stop some evil in the future, will their line be cut off? the fact that Isaiah 44 verses 1 through 5 focuses on the importance of offspring and descendants for God's redemptive plan and for the future hope of the world is a powerful reminder why abortion is so wicked and so wrong and the statement from Isaiah 44 too that God forms human beings from the womb delivers a powerful blow to that barricaded door of the demonic lie that the baby in the womb isn't human and doesn't have value. So as we try to kick down that dungeon door of the abortion lie in order to rescue the parents and rescue the babies and rescue their descendants, we need to remember two really important points derived from Isaiah 44. When you talk to people, I want you to emphasize two things. First of all, emphasize God. Emphasize God. 
Do you know what is missing from most national conversations about abortion? It's God. We talk about women. We talk about the babies. But we fail to talk about the maker of them both. Emphasize God in your conversations about abortion. We need to emphasize that a baby's worth comes not from its viability outside the womb, nor from its having measurable brain waves, nor from its ability to feel pain, nor from its having a heartbeat. Those are all really precious and important things, but we need to emphasize that a baby's worth comes from being made in the image of God, and that God is every baby's maker from the womb emphasize God secondly emphasize hope we need to help fathers and mothers understand that whatever difficulties they are facing are not worth cutting off an entire line of their own descendants we need to help them to see the hope and the potential that their child has and that their child's children have and that their children's children's children have Nothing in the present is worth cutting off the immense potential of all generations in the future. I understand that people find themselves in horrific circumstances. In this generation, things are bleak and they're in this terrible situation and they think there's no way out, but what we need to help them to see is that God can pour out a blessing and he can pour out his spirit on their children and on their children's children and on their children's children's children. Point them to the hope that God gives for the future. So as God gives you opportunity to advocate for the unborn, make sure you emphasize that God is the baby's maker from the womb and emphasize the immense hope and potential of future generations. Emphasize God and emphasize hope. Well, there's a lot more that could be said about the walls of lies that surround this dreadful evil of abortion, but I want to move on to a second topic, which is polytheism. We need to breach the dungeon door of Polytheism, which holds so many captives in the pagan religions and in the cults, particularly the cult of Mormonism. Look at Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me who is like me. Let him proclaim it and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. See, only the true and living God knows the end from the beginning so only he can give accurate prophecy. Verse 8 says this, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it to you? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. This is a massive door kick against the dungeon of polytheism. 
Now, what is polytheism? Polytheism is the belief that there is more than one God. And by the way, most human beings throughout history have been polytheists, from the Romans with all of their gods and the Greeks with all of their gods to all of the pagan religions with all of their gods. Most human beings have been polytheists. In fact, the Encyclopedia Britannica notes that, quote, polytheism characterizes virtually all religions other than Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, which share a common tradition of monotheism, the belief in one God. So apart from what are known as the Abrahamic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all others are polytheistic. Now in the United States, the most numerous and well-known and powerful polytheistic religion is ironically called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, more commonly known as the Mormons. And there is no doubt, no doubt at all, that Mormons are polytheists. They believe that there are millions of gods. And they also believe that they will become gods themselves. Let me read you a couple quotes from key Mormon leaders. Start with Joseph Smith from the History of the Church, Volume 6, pages 306 to 308. Quote, I wish to declare... I have always and in all congregations when I have preached on the subject of deity it has been the plurality of gods. Another quote. In the beginning the head of the gods called a council of the gods and they came together and concocted a plan to create the world and to people it. One of their so-called apostles Orson Pratt in the Journal of Discourses volume 2 page 345 from February 18th, 1855, says this. If we should take a million of worlds like this and number their particles, we should find that there are more gods than there are particles of matter in those worlds. So he says there's more gods than there are particles of matter in the universe. Millions, billions, trillions of gods. In fact, the foundational concept of Mormon theology was summed up in the famous motto penned by one of their early leaders, Lorenzo Snow, who famously wrote, as man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may be. In other words, here's what the Mormons teach and what they really believe. This is not, not what they tell you when they first come to your door. This is what they teach once they have you. They believe that God was once just a mortal man like you and I. He was mortal and he was sinful. But because he was a good Mormon who worshipped his God the Father and did lots of good works, he earned the right to enter the third level of heaven and became a God. He then created our world and populated it with people whom he made by marital relations with his many celestial wives. And now if a man joins the Mormon church, does the temple rituals, lives a good enough life, he too can become a god. He can have many celestial wives and populate a planet with people who will worship him as their God the Father. See, when they say they believe in God the Father, they mean something entirely different. Now you may say, well, that tells what, you know, what Mormonism claims to offer to men, but what about to Mormon women? Well, they don't leave women out. If women are good enough Mormons, they get to become gods themselves, goddesses. 
and they get to become one of the celestial wives for the new Mormon, a new Mormon god and then bear millions of children to populate his new planet for him. Now in the early days, the idea was that there would be many, many women who were sealed for eternity to one man. And, but that was kind of unpopular with the ladies. And so they've begun emphasizing more monogamy in, in later times. They've started saying that a married couple achieve godhood together and stay married for all, all eternity. And the idea of being married forever is much more appealing to women, but the Mormon church hasn't really explained how one woman is going to populate whole planets by herself. Being eternally pregnant and having millions of children doesn't exactly seem like the ideal eternity for most women, but I'm not a woman, so ladies, you'll have to weigh in on that yourselves. But again... At the heart of their religion is the belief that they will become gods. At the very heart of Mormonism lies the first lie of the devil in Genesis 3.5 when he says, you will be like God. But what does the Bible say about this? There are literally hundreds of verses throughout the Bible that refute the error of polytheism. But perhaps no other portion of Scripture does so more powerfully, more repeatedly, and more pointedly than Isaiah chapters 43 through 46. So if you have Mormon missionaries knock on your door, if you have a Mormon friend, try to open the Bible with them to Isaiah chapters 43 through 46 and make a loving appeal to them to repent of their blasphemy and to believe the true gospel. There are three key truths from Isaiah chapters 43 through 46 which you can show them. The first is that God says that no other being has ever become a God and none ever will. In chapter 43 verse 10, God says, before me there was no God formed and there will be none after me. Mormonism is holding out to people a lie that they can become a God. But the true and living God says, before me there was no God formed and there will be none after me. This is a direct refutation of Mormon teaching. There has always and ever and will ever only be one true God and he is the eternal one. Revelation 22, 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, as I've shared that verse with Mormons, their response typically is, well, you know, yes, of course, there's only one God for this world. The Bible was written for this world. So yes, there's only one God for this world, but for all the millions of other worlds, there's millions of other gods. Well, when they respond that way, then take them to chapter 44, verse 8, which says, Is there any God besides me, or is there any other rock? I know of none. God says that he does not know of any other gods. 
Now, Mormon theology is based on the idea that God revealed things to Joseph Smith on the golden plates, etc., and that's how they know about the council of gods and all these other gods. But the obvious question is, how can God reveal to Joseph Smith that there's lots of other gods when he revealed to Isaiah that he does not know of any other gods? You know, Mormons will say, no, 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 we're, listen, we're not polytheists. We only worship one God. In fact, they have a fancy theological term they use. They call themselves monolatrists. That sounds a lot better because it has mono or one in it, right? We're not polytheists, we're monolatrists. Well, what does the word monolatrism mean? Well, it simply means, quote, the belief in the existence of many gods but the consistent worship of only one of them. Mormons believe there are millions of gods but they claim they only worship one of them, the God who is the literal father of the people on this world. So they only worship their God the Father. But they believe their God the Father once was a man who worshiped his God the Father and that there are people on other planets who are worshiping their God the Father and that someday they will be a God and people will worship them as their God the Father. The key point, though, of Isaiah 44, 8 is that there aren't any other gods because God himself knows of none and he is omniscient he is omniscient third truth to share with them is from chapter 45 where God says plainly and repeatedly that he is the only God let me just read you a few of these verse 5 I am Yahweh and there is no other besides me there is no God Verse 6, there is no one besides me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. Verse 14, surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. Verse 18, I am Yahweh and there is none else. Verse 21, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. And then even into chapter 46, verse 9, which says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. The truth is crystal clear. There has been, there is, and ever will be only one God, and that is the true and living God, the triune God, revealed in Holy Scripture. So when you have a chance to talk with a Mormon missionary or a Mormon friend, open your Bible and take them to Isaiah chapters 43, 44, and 45. Particularly Isaiah 43, 10, Isaiah 44, verse 8, and Isaiah 45, verse 5. That brings us to our third topic, idolatry. Breaching the dungeon door of idolatry, a rescue mission to save Hindus and Catholics. Now I know I just offended a lot of people by putting Hindus and Catholics in the same category. Please keep listening and I'll explain why I did that. Let's read though Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? 
Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. For the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He gets hungry. His strength fails. He drinks no water, becomes weary. Another man takes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself, takes a cypress or an oak, and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I've seen the fire. But the rest of the wood he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls. Nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I've burned half of it in the fire and baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Many Hindus and many Catholics and many Eastern Orthodox bow down to statues. They bow down to blocks of wood. They bow down to blocks of stone, to graven images. They pray to them. They offer incense to them. I've personally seen in the holy sites of Jerusalem people prostrating themselves in Catholic and Orthodox temples prostrating themselves kissing the feet of the statue and, and, and crying out and burning incense and doing other forms of obedience to these graven images Hindus also are known for their graven images but interestingly, Hindus, Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox all deny that they are worshiping idols. Rather, they have something in common. They say that they are worshiping God, or in the Hindu case, gods, or venerating the saints through the statue. The Eastern Orthodox, for example, say that their icons are a means by which they connect with the saints. But they forget that this is exactly the same teaching that occurred when the Ten Commandments were given and the people of Israel made the golden calf. Remember what Aaron said when the golden calf was presented? He said to the people of Israel, this is Yahweh your God. See, they thought they were worshiping Yahweh through the golden calf. But what was the reaction of Moses? It was to throw down the tablets of the Ten Commandments because they had shattered the commandment against making graven images. Throughout the Bible, in the Ten Commandments, many other passages, bowing down to graven images, regardless of what their function is or what they re supposedly represent, is forbidden. This is idolatry. 
And so the Catholic attempt to distinguish between veneration and worship and the Hindu attempt to distinguish between worshiping the gods and praying to their idols is a distinction without a difference. At the end of the day, they're doing exactly what Isaiah so strongly condemns. They are bowing down to a block of wood or stone. Now that is why in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, a very strong warning is given by the Apostle John. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Stay away from them. Well, the fourth topic is evolution. I want you to look at Isaiah 44, verse 24, which says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. To, we need to breach the dungeon door of the lie of evolution and rescue the agnostics and atheists who have been held captive by this deception. Now, for the sake of time, we won't discuss this in depth. I simply want to point out that verse 24 makes it crystal clear that God's act of creation, not evolution, is how all things came to be. He created, he says, all things, and he did so, he says, by myself and all alone. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. And so we need to tear down the walls of the lie of evolution, which teaches that there is what I call the atheistic trinity. Eternal matter, matter that's always existed. Omniscient chance, chance that can create all the complexity of life, even the intellect of man. And omnipotent time. The evolutionary view is give time enough time and time will create all things. It's the atheistic trinity. Eternal matter, omniscient chance, omnipotent time. That is a poor substitute for the triune God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The reality is that God created all things out of nothing by the power of his word. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. He spoke and it was. Or as Isaiah 44, 24 puts it. He is the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by himself and spreading out the earth all alone. Well, in this marvelous chapter, the Lord has given us through the pen of Isaiah powerful truths which break down the dungeon doors of four dreadful deceptions, four doctrines of demons. Isaiah 44, 2 tore down the dungeon door of abortion. Isaiah 44, 8 tore down the dungeon door of polytheism. Isaiah 44, 9 tore down the dungeon door of idolatry. And Isaiah 44, 24 tore down the dungeon door of evolution. But I want to close by drawing your attention to what Isaiah does after he has torn down the doors of the prison. 
Remember in verses 9 through 20, he absolutely hammers the idolaters. He shows how ridiculous it is what they're doing. He comes at them hard. He tears down those lies, but once the walls of the lies have crumbled in front of the truth, what does he do? He brings gentle comfort and the encouraging hope of the gospel. Read with me verses 21 through 28. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of the boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depths of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire and he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple your foundation will be laid. What is he doing? He's now bringing comfort to the people of Israel. They're about to go into Babylonian captivity, but he's telling them there's going to come a time where he will raise up a man named Cyrus, a Medo-Persian king who hadn't even been born in order to deliver them from their captivity. After refuting and rebuking their idolatry, he gives them the tender comfort, the hope of, the, of God's redemptive plan. Again, he says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, your sins like heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. After tearing down the walls of the prison, he comforts them with the good news of the messianic hope. So again, note Isaiah's method. First, he shares hard truths to break down the dungeon doors. Then, he tenderly and gently shares good news with those who had been held captive. This is a good method for us to follow as we seek to rescue the perishing. I want to address a few comments to those who perhaps are either watching online or to whom someone in this congregation may share this message. And if you are someone who's in one of those four deceptions, I would imagine that this has been a hard message to listen to. Perhaps you've even been offended by what I have said to you. 
But I want you to know that I've said these things out of compassion for you, out of love for you, because you are trapped in a prison. The doctrines of demons which hold men's souls captive. But Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. The good news is that Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, came to this world and lived a perfect life, the life you could never live, the life I could never live. And then he died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And then he rose from the dead to break the power of sin and death. And he ascended to heaven from which the scripture says he will come again and return. But the Bible says to receive the gift of eternal life, you must repent of your sin and believe the gospel, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must trust in him fully and completely for your salvation. In Ephesians chapter 2, and I will close with this, it says that we were all once captives. It says in Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to make this the day in which you repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. I want to invite the men to come as we prepare to partake of the Lord's table. We're now going to come and we're going to celebrate together the glories of the gospel, the hope of the gospel. And we are going to remember the price that was paid for our salvation, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the shedding of his blood. And we are going to proclaim his death until he comes. Lord, as we come to your table, we're so grateful for the good news of the gospel. And it is my prayer that no one who heard this message will leave unsaved. Those who don't know you will repent and believe the good news. Lord, for those of us whom you've already saved by grace through faith, may we come with grateful hearts to your table. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.
Men, please come and serve. Communion is for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as the men serve, if you've not come to the place where you've given your